This week on Real Splitter Podcast, we are wrapping up our book club, and we've also got a few other things we're going to talk to you about. Welcome to the Rail Splitter Podcast, the Abraham Lincoln Podcast. I'm your co-host, Rail Splitter Mary, and joining me tonight is Rail Splitter Nick. What up, Rail Split Nash? Those of you who are crafting a beautifully handmade bookshelf uh, in your garage to put all your Miller Fillmore books. <laughs> Just kidding. I mean Lincoln books on. And Rail Splitter Jeremy. Uh, hello, everyone. I hope everybody's staying safe and hanging in there. Anyway. Well, you make that beautiful bookshelf as i recover from that introduction from nick that i was not expecting how are y'all both doing shitty i'm doing all right <laughs> other, other than whatever that was from nick i'm surviving you know <laughs> keeping my head low my eyes high is that a same i don't feel I like no idea Okay, anyway, so we are going to jump right into it. So we thought we would start off with something fun tonight. So the it was last night that Tattooed Historian, um, he's actually, his name's John. He's one of my friends. Um, he's at Inked Historian on Twitter. He tweeted out, so you can resurrect someone from history and have coffee with them. Who would it be and why? So the three of us are going to answer that for you. So which one of you two would like to begin with that? Nick, I know you. I know you. You uh, have been preparing for this all day. Did you want to go first? Yeah, I can do that. Okay. I would sit down with Millard Fillmore, so I could witness with my own bare eyes Jesus. how big of a jackass he is, and get more material to continue to fill episodes on making fun of him. So that's who I would choose, and to see if he is really as beautiful as the Queen said he was. All right. Um, I took a little bit of a different track. <laughs> um, I uh, was thinking about this, and um, I feel like many historic, like, like big-named historic people, I mean, obviously my, my number one answer is Abraham Lincoln, but I figured we were going to set that aside for the purposes of the question because um, I figured that would be fairly obvious. Um, but other than Abraham Lincoln, I feel like major figures in history have a quite a lot of research into them. A lot of their papers exist um, in many cases, certainly in American history. So I thought it could be interesting to perhaps hear like a completely unknown story or something. So um, I would choose the person from that very famous uh, photo of the enslaved person who had all the scars on his back. I'm sure you're probably familiar with that photo it was used in Ken Burns' Civil War and is kind of the, I'm sure if you Google um, enslaved person or whipping or something, you know, with whipping enslaved or whatever, that very iconic photo would show up. Um, but I just thought it'd be um, worthwhile to, would be in this fantasy that we have, fantasy story that we have, um, to hear the story, that, that, that man's story, and to get an insight of, of what what life may have been like for an enslaved person, because um, I think that that's 
a narrative that is often overlooked or not heard or not understood um, nearly as much as it should be, um, especially as we're talking about the repercussions of enslavement still to this day. So I would pick that particular person or maybe just an enslaved person from, you know, the pre-war years and um, try to learn more about what uh, what life was like for enslaved people in the pre-Civil War era. That's really great answer. That's I never would have thought of that. That's good. So, so mine is a general from the Civil War. It's not going to be who anybody expects. <laughs> it's Oliver Otis Howard, who is actually uh, he's now my favorite general. <laughs> that was a bomb I dropped what? on Twitter. Yeah. Um, anyway, so I would want to have coffee with Howard to ask him. What it was like fighting in the Eastern Theater versus the Western Theater. And just to see how, you know, what about the Western Theater allowed him to kind of move forward? And what about the the, the Eastern Theater kind of stalled him? And what was different about that? And how he felt about being the right-wing commander on the March to the Sea and how he felt being elevated to command after General McPherson was killed actually um, a week from today, uh, July the 22nd. He was elevated into the command unexpectedly. So that's what I would want to ask him. So we both picked losers, you and me, Mary. Good. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just kidding. My other choice would be Keith Richards. Oh, nice. He's not, oh yeah, I guess dead or alive, yep. Well, he'll never be, like, yeah. He's... I know. Wait, he's not dead? Yeah. He's been living dead. No, he'll never like, be. Dude, that, dude. Yeah, that's, that's not going to happen. He could get COVID five times over and it wouldn't even oh, be yeah. him. Oh, I'm sure he has it. It doesn't matter. He's probably got he's the, like, if we took his blood, we no, can make no. the vaccine from it. Yeah. He is immortal. Yep. Okay, so that was a fun thing to do. Um, so I think Jeremy. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, okay. So I think Jeremy, you learn more about us than you learn about anything else. Exactly. In that yeah. Segment. It was three very different answers, which was interesting. Um, and, I, and I think they were all on brand. So uh, yeah. Oh, if completely. You've been listening to the show, I think maybe it was a little bit too on the nose, but. Hopefully it was it was enjoyable. No, you. some people are going to be thrown off by mine because they were on Twitter from my little announcement oh, yeah, on yeah. Friday. It's like, oh, Sherman's not your favorite de- general. What? <laughs> no. I would chose Han Solo if I was choosing a general. Was Han Solo ever a general? I don't look know at look at you, a general. Look at yeah. wow, you and your general Grant's my favorite general. I don't have. I don't I'm play favorites. Yeah. I don't play favorites. I love them all the same. <laughs> oh, whatever. So you love love Fillmore the same as the others? Generals, I'm talking. <laughs> Just giving you a hard time. Um, anyway, so the next thing we're going to talk about is I think, Jeremy, you have something to tell us about a statue in Illinois. Stephen Douglas, am I correct? Yes. Yes. Yes, yes you are indeed. Uh, um, so this kind of branches off a couple episodes ago when Mary and Nick were talking about Confederate statues coming down. Um, in the state of Illinois, and I've talked about this long ago on the show, um, the um, if you go into the, well, the state capital of Illinois, there's a really nice big Lincoln in the front, but not far behind him, uh, very prominently placed as a statue of Stephen A. Douglas. 
uh, the little giant, of course, who uh, beat Lincoln for a Senate seat and lost for spot on Pennsylvania Avenue um, in 1858 and 1860, um, you know, famous for the Lincoln Douglas debates um, and everything else. Um, so he was also very much um, a pro slavery person candidate um, in, you know, uh, much of his work, you know, his, you know, his big um, cause, I guess, was popular, the you know, so-called popular sovereignty, um, where states could choose whether or not they would uh, enslave people or not. Um, so not, not a good, uh, you know, history does, you know, he's definitely on the wrong side of history, I guess, looking back on it. So just this week, uh, the Speaker of the House of Representatives for the state of Illinois, Mike Madigan, uh, proposed to remove that statue. But also, if you go into the House of Representatives um, in the State House in, in Springfield in Illinois, um, each side of the aisle, so to speak, is represented by a large painting. Um, on the right, um, as you're looking forward toward the, you know, as you're looking from the back of the room as you would walk in, um, are the Republicans. And of course, they have Abraham Lincoln, a giant painting of Abraham Lincoln signifying that's the Republican side. And then on the Democrat side, there's a giant painting of Stephen A. Douglas representing the Democrat side. And Madigan is proposing to uh, change Stephen A. Douglas's portrait with that of um, Illinois' other hero, uh, Barack Obama, uh, which is exactly what I proposed, by the way, um, I don't know, forever ago. I thought that that would be a good replacement. Um, so there's that arguments or debates over are we erasing history or does Stephen A. Douglas have a place there? And this is very much one of those um, half measures kind of conversation of, you know, there's a difference between honoring Stephen Douglas and honoring the Confederates. Stephen Douglas's statue and portraits, you can make an argument, were not put up there as a source of white supremacy while the monuments to the Confederacy um, certainly were. Um, so I don't know, you know, I think there's a little bit of merit to say that, yes, that wasn't, that it isn't a symbol of white supremacy nearly to the extent that the Confederate monuments are, uh, but it is still an interesting debate in Illinois, and I, it doesn't look like anything's going to change anytime soon, uh, but I I think that it's, um, that it's pretty cool. I mean, it's usually uh, people are gone for a little while before monuments start being erected for them, um, and, you know, of course, um President Obama is still with us, thankfully. Uh, but I think it would be cool for him to be represented in Springfield, um, and it would be in a in a building in which he served. I completely agree with you. I think it's probably appropriate. I think the with Douglas, you know, tell it in proper context, put it in a museum kind of thing, right? You know, and say sure, tell yeah. this tell the story behind it. I don't believe in getting rid of them. I believe in telling the story. You know, like mm -hmm. you can move them to another place. But yeah, like I think Obama, yeah. Yeah, I mean, just how striking would that be to walk into a, you mm -hmm. know, they're all very ornate and, you know, I really like going through state capitals, but to go into that chamber and you've got Obama on one side and Lincoln on the other, and I just think that that would be, be quite moving. Um, I think that's course, what's there's, needed there's right now. Yes, I agree. And of course, there's vast, vast underrepresentation of many, many different groups and monuments in general, but certainly monuments in Springfield. So that's something that also needs to be rectified, but um, I think this could be a step in the right direction. Um, there's also plenty of room on the grounds for many more monuments as well. So um, that's at least something to consider. 
Yeah, I mean, I think it'd be a cool idea uh, for sure. I mean, there's nothing wrong with evolving and updating pitchers or especially somebody who's done something significant. I mean, Obama laid his path to the presidency through that Capitol building, so um, extremely fitting um, to do that, I would think. And, yeah, Douglas is an interesting one because, like, even, like, his grave is, what, on the south side of Chicago? Mm-hmm. And it's, like, mm-hmm. this 90-foot thing, dude. Like, I think the statue's, like, 10 feet, and then it's on top of, like, this 80-foot, 90-foot pillar. Jeez. Like, overlook it. Like, I, you know, I don't know. That's a little problematic to me. Um, I can understand, obviously, it's his um, grave site, but... Like, do we need to put somebody on? Does anybody need to be put on a freaking eighty foot pillar? Um, so, no. obviously, I think it's different when you look at the Lincoln Douglas sites themselves, like mm-hmm. Freeport. Um, a lot of them have a Lincoln Douglas statue there. Um, that's kind of representing the debates, which plays such a significant part. Um, so, you know that that represents kind of that symbolic moment. It kind of put Lincoln on a map, and I I, I understand um, where that's at. Um, but yeah, I mean, Douglas definitely very checkered past for sure. Um, and Boyce, you can bring a good point. He did not, you know, um, succeed with the Confederacy, um, and go there. So, um, but yeah, I, I think it's time to change it definitely. And mm-hmm. when you talk about the Capitol, something that represents your, you know, the citizens of the state, um, I, I think it's time that we need to update some of that and think about that history as well in the past. George Buss, I saw, weighed in on this um, because he is in charge of, like, the Stephen Douglas Society. He had a good uh, write-up on it. Uh, he actually advocated not moving it. So um, Interesting. keeping – I can't remember what it was directly – because there's, like, three – what is there? You got the picture in the Capitol, one statue of him in the Capitol, right, boys? Yeah, and and I, I think the thing about that particular statue is it's very it's, – it's, very prominently placed. Um, you know, there's a couple others, um, like Everett, um, Dirksen has one, uh, there's like a coal miner, um, across the street, there's a Martin Luther King. Uh, but it's very, very much in front and center right before the main kind yeah. of entrance. So, and then there's, um, uh, I know the gravesite has been talked about too here in Illinois. So those are kind of the three areas or the three things people are talking about. Yeah, the gravesite up real quick is ninety six feet tall. Yeah, um, his his monument, uh, Abraham Lincoln's, is one hundred and seventeen feet. So try as you might, Stephen Douglas, you will never be taller than Abraham Lincoln. Wow. <laughs> Nor should he. Wow. No. So yeah, that's uh, this the I, I was there. I stopped over there when I was in Chicago uh, a couple months ago. It's it's basically straight east of where the White Sox play, which is what guaranteed rate field now or whatever they'll. Comiskey, um, it's straight east of there. If you hit Lake Michigan, you gone too far. It's like right before the lake. So, um, yeah, it's it's yeah, it's interesting. I think you know how Chicago had kind of taken them as as taken him in as like its native son for a while there in the late nineteenth century, but and now he's in the city at least all but forgotten except for that that one little piece of real estate there. So. Um, and, you know, I think it does bring up the point, like, where do you draw the line um, with taking statues down and taking monuments down and all that kind of thing? Because, 
Um, I think there's a much stronger argument for Jefferson and Washington because they actually enslaved people. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, Douglas, yeah, I don't know. Pick your poison. I guess wrong is wrong. Right. But, um, but, but those monuments are not because of their enslavement or honoring their enslavement. Whereas the Confederate monuments are very much um, put up for the express purpose. And I know you all talked about this before, but put up for the express purpose of establishing white supremacy through this, uh, this Southern identity. So, um, and literally traitors to the country. So, but we've gone there, we've had that conversation. Uh, but you know, uh, I think Illinois, I think that the painting I think is much more of, to me, it's kind of a no brainer. Like you're the, the Democrats can pick who, whose painting is there. I'm sure they could get private funding for it. Just switch that out. Yeah. I don't think that's a nearly as big as, um, and there will be for sure many monuments to Obama in the state of Illinois. There absolutely will be in Springfield. Um, so I, that that will happen. Um, it's just a matter of time. Whether or not it replaces Douglas or is an addition to, I think, is what is the only thing that hasn't been yet decided. I mean, as a Democrat in Illinois, I mean, come on. I mean, a Democrat when Douglas was in charge is not even like to, nowhere near the same platform anymore. So, yeah, I mean, to me, kind of why it hasn't been done already. I mean, I know history and they just probably don't think about it. But, um, yeah, this time has definitely got us rethinking that kind of stuff. Uh, Who else? Who would be second in line to put up on that picture from Illinois? (sighs) Wojtovich? <laughs> not gonna weigh uh, in because I don't Simon, know anything maybe? about the history of Illinois other than Abraham uh, Lincoln. That's a good call. Paul Simon's a good call. Paul Simon, yeah, uh, who did, did not sing songs with our Garfunkel. I mean, that Paul Simon did, but the senator Paul Simon. Um, <laughs> I he's would kind actually, of a down like they like him downstate a little bit more. I would propose a Paul Simon, but then like a Paul Simon, <laughs> little faded of the actual Paul Simon and Simon and Garfunkel uh, behind him over his shoulder. <laughs> I think that's a good compromise. Because, yeah, we, Paul Simon, then, lots of connections to downstate Illinois. And then we have the Chevy Chase music video always playing next to it because that's a great uh, music video. That is the best music video ever. Although Chevy Chase is an ass, so. <laughs> yeah. But but apparently he, like, yeah. learned that song, like, in his car on the way to the shoot for that. Well, I... Let's see, yeah. Little, little, you're getting all kinds of Okay, yeah, we're, we're, getting we're getting way more money. That's actually a good question. Like, if, if it's not Barack Obama, and for people from Illinois and everywhere, uh, who who would it be? If you were going to replace the painting of Stephen A. Douglas, uh, who would it be? Uh, Mayor Daly. Not McClernand. God. Isn't McClernand from Illinois? McClernand's from, from Springfield, yeah, yeah. yeah. Not him. Um, no. Not him. Um, yeah. I mean, you could put, like, a, not a generic, but, like, a regimental monument, I suppose, like the 12th Cavalry or something, but. I think in the bathroom, you should have the mugshots of all our governors that have been arrested. Well, yeah, because right now there's not one for Blagojevich because they're going to they're, they're gonna make him pay for it himself. Oh, do you guys sound like you're all corrupt? Like, what are you being run by the frickin' mafia over there? No, they're all corrupt. Good. We had, we had, okay. We well, it's government, government, right? So why not? Although we had, the one, we had, one didn't one get uh, nominated for a Nobel Peace Prize at the same time he was under uh, investigation. <laughs> oh, good. Yes, he was under investigation and ended up going to prison. Um, good. We had good. consecutive governors who went to prison. 
Um, one of them was nominated for a Nobel Prize because he, he essentially abolished the death penalty in Illinois and he commuted, not commuted, but gave clemency to everyone on death row um, in Illinois. So, which is good. Thank you, George Ryan, but he also was in prison. So, <laughs> wow. Illinois, baby. Illinois, baby. You guys are, guys are rocking it. We're the um, land of Lincoln. Don't you ever forget that. Yeah. Anyway, so any parting thoughts from that discussion? Uh, no, I okay. promise we'll talk about Lincoln today. All right. So we are going to move on to our discussion about, uh, this is actually our final episode about the book club, the third installment of it. So Tried by War by James M. McPherson. So we're going to be talking about chapter 10, the epilogue, and just wrapping it up. And as you can see, Nick is re... <laughs> no, they can't see it. So never mind. Nick is opening up the book and probably reading it as we speak. <laughs> Actually, um, just yeah, for y'all that I don't have... know, we record this via Google Can you see the Hangouts. notes there? Oh, hey, you want to look at this? Look at the sticky note game. Uh, I did that sticky for Russian game strong. All right, so we're going to be talking about Chapter 10, the epilogue, and just wrapping up what we thought about uh, James M. McPherson's Tried by War. So, Chapter 10, when I can find it. It starts in 1864 in the summer, which is when Lincoln is really struggling with going into the election. And this was probably one of my favorite chapters in this book. I don't know about you two, but it was really, I don't know, the way he told everything and because he's, he's having to wrap everything up. But there's just so much going on for Lincoln. And he really hits home with that how much Lincoln has going on. So he's not just dealing with like the war, but he's dealing with politics too. And that's how I felt about this chapter. This chapter was as much about war as it, as it was about politics. Yeah. I'd rate it about three, 3.5 out of five for a chapter. <laughs> yeah. And that that's kind of what I was looking for throughout, in, you know, throughout the book was, you know, because I was excited, and maybe it was me reading too much in the title, but, you know, him really being commander-in-chief as opposed to, like, just, you know, kind of a synopsis of the war itself. So mm -hmm. I thought bringing the political angle was I, – I like that. I, it's more interesting for me to read. Yeah, and he starts off with – so it starts off with, like, there's a lot of, like, media stuff going on around the election because – McClellan, there's the possibility that he could possibly win. Um, the one thing that caught my eye was Confederate agents in Canada who were subsidizing several Democratic newspapers and politicians. And I was like, oh, here we go again. This is where Canada comes in here. We were uh, probably, this is probably in Montreal that this is happening. Um, that's where the, it turns out that a lot of the, uh, like, Booth, John Surratt, Lincoln Conspiracy, they're all up in Montreal, Canada, doing their stuff. Um, so, you know, yeah. the, the one part about this chapter that they did a good job, I thought, that I enjoyed, is kind of them talking about, uh, you know, the negotiations for peace. Yes. And kind of how that was played politically. Yep. 
Um, there's a chapter talks about, like, as Mary was saying, you got, you know, some Confederates that supposedly had, um, you know, the approval from Jefferson to negotiate peace and Lincoln used it as a chance to kind of tell them that it's not going to happen. I mean, Mm -hmm. um, and then it actually hurts them politically in the newspapers. Um, it actually takes a little bit of a hit on top of everything else going wrong at that time. Um, but then he, and I didn't know much about this. Uh, two gentlemen, I don't know if you have the names, Mary, but um, in notes or something, but basically Lincoln sends two union guys down there to negotiate with Jefferson. Yep. And Jefferson basically does the same thing, basically showing that both Jefferson and Lincoln, there's no middle ground. Yeah. Um, and that, you know, kind of shows everybody. So Lincoln kind of was able to, you know, regain some traction there, um, kind of make up for uh, the political blunder that the first one became by kind of showing there is no middle ground. So Jefferson, just like him, aren't willing to do the things that are needed. And yeah. the holdup really is the slavery issue. Yeah, um, exactly. It, it's kind of, this is when they really realize the tide of war is turning. It's like, oh, they're just not going to let us be a separate nation. It's, we have to go back to them. And that's what McPherson really hits home in this chapter, is that... Yeah. And it kind of shows the full evolution of Lincoln. You know, Lincoln's making statements at the beginning of the war that yep. he'll do whatever he can to keep the union together. Um, and then by this point, it's no slavery is not, no more slavery. I mean, that's what it is. Yeah. No, he so. he do, he does a great job showing that. He gives a great overview of like just how challenging it was for Lincoln, as well with just like not just the media, but the you know what's going on in the war too. You know, like there's so much pressure on him. With, um, you know, Sherman is right now, he's trying to, like, take Atlanta and all that. And then um, Lincoln releases that blind memorandum on August 23rd, which um, McPherson speaks about. Um, And that's the one where it says, I will just cooperate with whatever president is elected. And he has all his cabinet members just sign that. Because he thinks he's going to lose the election. Like, that's how scary it was. Like, McPherson really hits home with how scary it was for Lincoln. It, Yeah, I think that's an often overlooked element of yeah. Lincoln's, Lincoln, his presidency, is that, you know, he there was a sense of urgency in 64 um, that, you know, he had, he had to get done what he had to get done before his, you know, his first term expired because his second term wasn't guaranteed. Um and you know we we've had an episode on that election, and I'm sure we can talk. We'll talk about it again, um, and how, um, you know how it, how it ended up working out for him. I think he was fortunate that McClellan really wasn't a strong candidate um, out of the Democrats, and the Democrats were still splintered pretty badly um, from the effects of 1860, when their party was pretty much decimated um, for a little while there. Um, but yeah, I think that you know him him having that sense of urgency of like I got to get stuff done quickly um, because you know essentially if he had lost the election it would have been the the the, the voters saying signaling that they're not supporting the war that you know would have brought us a, a swift end to the war whether the union would have lost or the you know seceded states would have entered on their own terms instead of on Lincoln's terms so. It's yeah, great. Interesting stuff. I mean, that's literally the only way the South could win the war at that point. I mean, yeah. I mean, they're pretty much defeated on the, you know, on the field. Yes, it was taking longer to actually, you know, um, 
to kind of end it, but you know, for all sense of purposes, from a military standpoint, it was just a matter of time, and that time was just taking longer than what a lot of people wanted. Um, yeah, it's, and it's it, hard to it's hard to say. Like for all intents and purposes, this thing's over when you still have young people dying. You know, so like you know, to say, oh, it's only a matter because really by November of sixty four, it's essentially over you know i mean 65 you know you're in april when the fighting is just starting in the spring you know you know if it's following previous years uh, big fighting well and, I, uh, I understand there's casualties but i mean there are huge right. underdogs by that point i mean oh yeah but, but I think, another th- the thing that really kills mcclellan to me is the platform of the democratic party they basically make him a peace candidate oh yeah and then which alienates all his soldiers who fought underneath them, and it's the platform that kills McClellan more than anything, I think. Yeah, it is. They basically put him in this position of being somebody who, I mean, basically the platform is, we don't want to do the war anymore, we're going to surrender, we're going to negotiate for peace. I mean, that's basically how it was perceived. But even then, they were divided. Like, there was Vallandigham, who had a completely different platform than McClellan, and like McClellan was like, I don't know what we're doing right now. Well, McClellan wasn't active in establishing the platform as part of the problem. I think. No, no, that was so, definitely the problem. So, well, yeah, I think to me that's always been fascinating. That really the difference maker in the election was the the soldiers' vote. Yeah, and it went overwhelmingly toward link to Lincoln. Um, when you have, and that was, I think, probably one of the leading factors with choosing McClellan to, to top the ticket for the Democrats was thinking that he would help get the soldiers vote. Cause he will, he was at, at one time very popular um, among the rank and file and his, in his army. But, um, but yeah, Nick, you make a good point. Like the platform, you know, personality sometimes supersedes platform. Um, sometimes it doesn't. And in this mm-hmm. case, it, it certainly didn't, but I don't, McClellan wasn't the person, you know, anyway. No, I, <laughs> I think we all agree on that. Oh, McClellan is president. Ooh. I think that that just from a just you know not to get too far away from the book, but just from a historic standpoint, I think that gets overrated sometimes. You have you basically have George Washington. I think I don't think you could count in the same conversation just because of the difference in time. But you essentially have Zachary Taylor and Dwight Eisenhower as the only two actual presidents who's wrote a military career into the White House. And they both very much did, but other than that, you know, Grant, uh, Grant. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, Garfield for sure. I wouldn't say Gar- Garfield was a politician too. I mean, he had, he had been in elective office, so really three. I that, yeah, Overland Grant was a huge, but like you know, Winfield Scott um, lost, um, McClellan lost. Like I don't think it's quite as you know. I don't think people are going to blindly vote. Uh, as much as people historically think, and certainly not now. I mean, that would, you know, now it's it's it would very very unlikely to happen. Um, but it's it's not as if the only ones who had who ran on that on that military hero kind of um, persona, I guess, uh, really worked. I mean, you can maybe make an argument for Harrison, William Henry Harrison, but I think that was more of a political. Like he was never the military hero until they made him into it with the whole tip a canoe thing and you know like i think they built they built that that mythic status up they manufactured that politically more than i think it was an actual um 
you know, him, him being a popular military person. Hey, great song. That jams. <laughs> no, I'm... The Tippica New song. I don't know if I've heard that before. Anyway, moving on. <laughs> um, so, like, Lincoln... Or so, in this book, it starts to go on about um, what Grant is doing with this bulldog grip. So, it shifts back to the war. Um, but the one thing that I like that McPherson did is he's talking about Vallandigham and he says Vallandigham perhaps almost hoping that if he gave Vallandigham enough rope he might hang his party as well as himself this is just what happened with an assist with William T Sherman and it goes on for i think like two or three pages before we find out what Sherman did which is taking Atlanta yeah that was the boring part of the book <laughs> Oh, stop. Is this just, are you throwing shade or are you being serious? About, no, I was just throwing shade about Sherman. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Okay, I shouldn't say it's two or three three pages. It's like a page. But yeah, so Sherman wins Atlanta, and that is one of the things that brings about, you know, one of the things that they say gave Lincoln his win in 1864. But the one thing that never get like shouldn't say never but it gets overshadowed is what Sheridan did in the Shenandoah Valley that gives Lincoln that is another thing that contributes to his election win and McPherson does so well at highlighting this how important what what Sheridan did in the Shenandoah Valley and I feel like you know even though Sherman is my second Sheridan gets so overlooked in this aspect yeah, I mean, you did a great job. I think it's kind of nice because it's like Lincoln finally has his generals that that can that they share like Grant, Sheridan, Sherman. Uh, you can even throw Thomas in the mix. Yes, he mentions um, Thomas so much, which I love. Yeah. And then he does a great job. Just like they finally are all on the same page, and it brings it home the war finally. It's like. Took four or five years to do it, but damn it, it finally happened for Lincoln. Yeah, I I really appreciate that McPherson has you know he he mentioned Sheridan, Sherman, Grant, but he also throws Thomas into this too with Nashville. Yeah, and then I made a mistake the other day when we were talking about this, uh Hood getting his ass kicked by Sherman. Hood gets his ass kicked by Thomas. Yeah, so I misspoke a couple episodes ago. Look at that attention to detail. Well, technically, Hood does get, like, Hood gets, um, Hood is in charge when Sherman finally takes Atlanta and gets driven away from there. So you were sort of right. But Thomas kicks his ass multiple times. Mm. Nah, he's the hammer in Nashville. And, you know, he does a nice job to talk about how, like, Lincoln defended Thomas. Like, uh, yep. Grant Thomas did not see eye to eye. Grant, uh, especially, he actually wanted to, to boat him, get rid of him. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Lincoln had his back, so and it was the right decision. He came through too. Yep. No, I really liked how McPherson is very pro Thomas. I really like that because um, I feel like Thomas does not get his credit, and part part of that is because of how um, Grant and Sherman talk about him in his in their memoirs. Like, and there was some bias going on there because Thomas was from Virginia, and they saw him as being like Grant saw him as being slow. But if you look at things like what happened in Chattanooga, 
and other things Thomas did. He wasn't being slow. He was thinking things through, being methodical. And had he just went with what Grant wanted, things might not have gone that great. It felt like Thomas, the way I was reading and thinking about this, is like obviously the advantage was on the defensive. But you can't win a war just always being on the defensive. Exactly. Where the advantage really came into play, and I don't know if Lincoln knew this or it was by accident, is really when they assault, you're able to stop their assault, then it's your counter assault yes. where you have a huge advantage and where a lot of these battles are won, specifically Thomas uh, a couple times. And I don't know if Lincoln purposely understood that, um, but at, and he kind of just kind of fell into that. But that's really how kind of the Civil War worked. And... Now, able to do it, you know, you look at Gettysburg with Meade, you know, was it, would that have been the right decision? Could he have done it logistically, how tired his guys are? We'll never know. But I think Lincoln's saying, hey, they assaulted, you did it on the defensive, bam, now go get them when you have them on the run. So that counter-assault, so key, I think, in the Civil War. Well, and I think that's, like, where Thomas, that's one of the reasons why I think he's one of the best the Union had, is because he had all that. Could Thomas have done the march to the sea? No, I I yeah. don't think he had it. But what Thomas did at Nashville, just the way McPherson tells it, like he definitely is one of the reasons why the Union Union won the Civil War. Like for that reason, like Thomas was incredibly talented. Probably a little bit more than Grant and Sherman. I'm probably going to get hit for that, but whatever, I'll take it. I'm going to take that one. He was more conservative, I feel, and more his tendency was to be on the defensive, whereas I think Sherman and Grant were more innovative Yes, um, and kind of saw where war was going with this idea of total war, Mm -hmm. uh, especially Sherman. Yeah. And then Grant was just, like Lincoln says it, like this this bulldog. He was just going to plow head first. It's just kind of like... It's like three different like coaches, like basketball, coaches, oh yeah, football coaches with a different philosophy. If I probably want to run their game plan, but I think um, Lincoln. I, I was literally saw... thinking about. I was literally thinking about coaching when you were talking about. <laughs> like I hate that style of soccer where you just hung, like stay back defensively and look for a counterattack. Like I hate that. I think it's boring and terrible. Um, but uh, Jose Mourinho, who's a soccer manager, does that all the time. But anyway, um, I think that kind of the, to your points that you're making, like I think that just the understanding of what the civil, what the warfare was going to be that Lincoln understood potentially more, maybe even because he wasn't a West Point educated military mind where like, you know, the, the, the old school, you know, and there's still a lot to it, but idea was like, if you hold the ground, you win the battle and it's about, you know, how much territory you have or, you know, making sure that you hold the line or whatever, and breaking through the line equals victory because you push them back and you control more land and more real estate. Whereas Lincoln knew that, that the, the enemy was not the geographic South and the defense was not defending the geographic North. The enemy was the Confederate army and the Confederacy itself. So it wasn't as much as pushing his army as far into Southern territory as possible as it was eliminating their ability to make war. Um, so, you know, I think Sherman understood that with total war. I think Thomas being more defensive was probably like in need a little bit at Gettysburg perhaps too, where like, why would I pursue them? Like we've, we, we hold the ground, we hold the field, we've won the battle. 
Um, because from a military traditional, you know, approach to it, like, yes, you do, you, you do hold the crown and, and you, and you have pushed them back. Um, whereas, you know, Lincoln was very much like, it's not about holding the ground. It's about just, you know, destroying their army. Um, I think he understood that. I think Sherman grew to understand that. I think Grant very much understood it once he got going with, you know, sustaining heavy losses, um, when he moved East, um, but, you know, maybe guys like Thomas who and, and, and maybe even me at Gettysburg who didn't really push that advantage as much and preferred that defensive type of fighting, you know, that's that perhaps that's where that difference came from. Um, but that said, you know, if Thomas doesn't hold that line at Chickamauga, I think the entire Shenandoah Valley becomes different. You know, oh, Chattanooga yeah. is different, you know, perhaps a much, much more strenuous fight uh, to control the Rappahannock. Is it the Rappahannock down there? Um, or whatever, not the Red Panic, um, the Shenandoah Valley. Shenandoah. <laughs> There's uh, no river. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Whatever. My bad. Um, but you know, to control that, you know, Eastern Tennessee yeah. going into the Mississippi river, you know, all the way over to Memphis like that, that is often overlooked. I think Chickamauga look being looked at as a union loss. I think that that often gets overlooked where it could have been a much worse union loss that resulted in the subsequent major victories not yep. happening. Um, and you could almost say that that union loss set up more important victories later on, meaning, you know, specifically um, Chattanooga um, and, and basically controlling, controlling Chattanooga and, and ultimately then controlling um, how it flows over to the Mississippi. Yeah. And I think Lincoln saw like what he had in each of those generals, Sue, Thomas, Sherman, Sheridan, Grant, and what they all brought to the table. Um, the other thing that I like that he just that McPherson discussed in this chapter was the the prisoner exchanges too, like how that was all going. How that is another part of the war. So it's not just the battles that Lincoln is having to deal with and the generals, but he's having to deal with this, it, like what is happening with these prisoner exchanges as well. And it's to, specifically to do with the African Americans. The fact that Lee is like we're not going to exchange them because they could be former slaves. And Lincoln is just like, well, then we're not going to give you back any of yours if that's how you're going to be. Which leads me to being, let's tear down his damn statue in Richmond. No shit. Yeah. Yep. And the barracks named after him in West Point. Yep. Don't tear him down. Just rename that. Yep. But yeah, just just reading that was like I felt myself getting a little bit like like really like you're not going to give back the African American prisoners of war <laughs> like Well, I mean well, just the fact that they were prisoners of war, I mean most yeah. many 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 units refused to take them as prisoners and 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 most many of the black units knew not to surrender regardless of their situation yeah. because they weren't going to be taken as prisoners of war. So they just kept on fighting because that's the only choice they had. They were going to die one way or the other. Yeah. And it's just, it's, you know, in this prisoner exchange that he discusses, um, Grant and Lee where where Grant's like, well, I'm not doing it. Like just how they stand their ground on that issue. Is, yeah. Yeah. And I think that's just a fundamental element of the war is, yeah. you know, I don't think anybody was surprised on the union side that they weren't going to do that. Yeah. But yeah, they, they stuck to it. Yeah. And which wasn't always the most popular thing for sure, politically, because 
you know, there's other prisoners of war also that need to be exchanged. And, you know, of course, people wanted them home or, or at least back fighting. Yeah. And of course, you know, the Confederacy is going to send, they send prisoners from Andersonville that are the worst possible. That's what McPherson mm-hmm. writes about, just to try and ply the North into this whole thing. But then they won't, when Grant's like, we want the African-American soldiers first. And Lee's like, nope their property it's like wow good to know what you're fighting about then oh they knew what they were fighting oh yeah yeah and it's and and, and to say that it was something else is just absurd for for, i mean there's a million of them but that's one example right there yeah um i do think there's an element too where you know prisoners of war is a was took resources you know that, that the south didn't have and they, you know they treated which is why andersonville was such a hellish place because yep. they, they did not have the infrastructure resources to supply their troops let alone the prisoners of war so yeah the, the prisoner exchange for sure would have benefited them because they needed they needed people and they needed to, to relieve themselves of the of trying to figure out what to do with prisoners of war when they had no no real supply chain that was functioning uh functional um for for the whole process yep no they they did and it was i mean i found his discussion about it really good it it really is something that i think probably when we look at the civil war we might forget about that aspect especially with lincoln's presidency what he's having all the stuff he's having to deal with so He's not just having to deal with battles, it's politics, but it's these prisoner exchanges, it's everything. So there's so much weighing on him. But this is 1864, and he's in the election. And he ends up winning it, as we know. And part of that reason is because of the soldiers' vote to win it. But yeah, he gets it. And then Sherman, in November, Sherman starts doing his march to the sea at that time. And this is one of my favorite parts of this chapter, (laughs) not because it's Sherman, obviously, but just because of how McPherson talks about um, how he has to convince the two of them about it. And there's a lot of back and forth for a while Mm -hmm. about it, that there's not a lot of like uptake on it right away. It's kind of like, we don't know if we want you to do this. (laughs) Right. But I think it also shows the trust that they have because eventually they do. They, it. yep, yeah, they and like they basically Grant trusts Sherman and yep. Lincoln trusts Grant, which just kind of shows that finally, finally, there's some ability to work together. Yeah, it's like okay, yeah, yeah, just let him do it. Um, there's also the um, there's the loss at Fort Fisher, too, which Alexander Stevens says to be one of the greatest disasters that had befallen our cause from the beginning of the war. And there's also, um, and so Sherman takes Atlanta, obviously sends that famous telegram, which Atlanta is, or not Atlanta, Savannah, <laughs> the, the Christmas telegram. I beg to present you Christmas gift of Savannah. Um, but then that goes into 1865, and that's where we start getting into events that will be very familiar to anybody that has seen the movie Lincoln. And that is the peace negotiations that are happening with the Confederacy. And it begins with Blair going to Richmond. And that's at the almost at the beginning of the Lincoln movie, which McPherson mentions. 
So I'm sure everybody's familiar with that scene in the Lincoln movie. Yeah, it's uh, that the Lincoln movie is just so well done and it's so yeah wonderfully written. Anytime I'm reading about that part of Lincoln's life or career, I'm like, I'll just watch the movie again. Yeah, no, <laughs> this, I love it so. The, the last bit of this chapter, beginning or last like beginning with Confederate Vice President on page two fifty six, all the way to the end is basically the movie Lincoln. Mm-hmm summed up um and it talks about when lincoln visits these peace commissioners and i think it's stevens hunter of course the name's missing me right now there's three of them thompson it's Steven, essentially stevens is like the yeah stephen douglas nice group, yeah. yeah um but you know mcpherson talks about some pretty famous quotes in it like you know he says I do not profess to be posted in history. All I distinctly recollect about the case of Charles the first is that he lost his head. (laughs) So he's he's mentioning some pretty famous quotes that Lincoln said in all this when he's talking to these peace commissioners. So that's what the last bit of this chapter is about is just these peace commissioners. It's about uh, Lincoln's visit to city point with grant for the last two, for two weeks in his presidency and then his second inaugural, which McPherson says is the best inaugural address ever given. Agreed. Which I would agree with. Well, we got to wait to see what Trump has in store for us. Oh, yeah. Oh, oh God, don't <laughs> say, no. No. Just, just kidding, guys. No. Relax. Nope. Um, but the last yeah. sentence in the chapter, did you, uh, did you guys pick up on that, the last Actually, it's not last sentence. It's the last paragraph of this chapter 10. John Wilkes Booth? Yep. That's how the chapter ends. Yep. Foreshadowing the assassination. Yep. How did you guys feel about that? You know, I mean, we've talked about it, the like over-romanticization of Booth and, you know, all that <laughs> other stuff. Like, I get it. People identify with it and know it. Everybody's going to pick up on that reference. But at the same time, you know, the movie did it too. Like, yep. You know, I'm I'm glad. I love the way that they portrayed it. Um, it's as painful as it was to watch with the, um, you know, Tad's reaction and everything. But um, you know, when he's like going to the theater, it's just like wah wah. You know, getting ready to go, he's talking to the, you know, his servant or whatever, and he's you know like, oh, we're about ready to go take in a play. You know, and that kind of thing. I always, you know, I'm not a huge fan of that kind of thing, but. It is what it is. I, Makes me wonder about their target audience because if it's just a casual yeah. his, history fan, maybe that's done to let you know that that much came after that. That's why I put that paragraph in there. Yeah. Uh, to me, it's just kind of a waste of ink. Um, so, yeah. Well, I think it depends like on that target history audience. And looking back at the whole book, reading this, the final, it would be two sentences of this. I would say that that's they're looking for that audience that doesn't have the in-depth knowledge of Lincoln and the Civil War. So to end with that, that's going to grip them and that's going to be like, oh, I want to know more. You know, mm-hmm. what else yeah. is there to know about this? I mean, for me, I was like reading those words like, you know, that means that da, 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 citizenship now by God, I'll put him through. Like, yeah, I mm-hmm. I don't like reading that. 
but that's what happened and that's what people well, need to and that's, know. It, yeah, that's significant because that that particular sentence solidifies the fact that, that Abraham Lincoln was a martyr for the cause. Exactly. And, and, and what he did for freedom cost him the ultimate sacrifice, the last true measure, whatever you want to say. Like, yeah. Um, and it's undeniable um, because that was what he said. So, um, so yeah, I think that it, it is important for that particular element of it. Yep. For sure. So now we're on to the epilogue, <laughs> the last bit of this book where um, McPherson's wrapping everything up. I thought he wrapped it up really, really well, um, especially, you know, that he mentions that Abraham Lincoln makes mistakes in his presidency and he moves on from them. He learns from them. Um, and that's, he illustrates that with how he deals with the command structure of the army of the Potomac. Um, there's also, um, you know, just the fact that he has included Thomas in all of this as well. That's something you rarely see. And who won the civil war? You usually just see Sherman Grant Sheridan. You never see Thomas. Mm-hmm. The fact that Thomas is mentioned, that elevated this book so much for me. Yeah, I think that that's like a one of the curses of the of the Union versus the can like I feel like the Confederacy like, and probably it's because Lee is such a huge, but like their core commanders and you know like lesser generals, whatever you want to say, like you know Jackson never had his own army. Mm-hmm. You know, or and people know him and Longstreet and Forrest and you know go on and on about the generals like, but the North it's always like, oh, who was the who who was the top general of the Army of the Potomac? Those are the only generals we know about. So I, I do like how you know Thomas is getting his due uh, and Sherman Sheridan. You know, um, I, I think it'll hopefully it goes a little farther down the line. But in this particular case, it's nice to to see Thomas get get his due for sure. Well, the fact that Ch- Thomas is getting his due with Grant, Sherman, Thomas, and Sheridan are the four he mentions as helping win the war. Mm-hmm. Which it's usually it's just Grant, Sheridan, Sherman. You don't see Thomas mentioned for Nashville ever. Which is it's great to see him finally mentioned for that. Nick. Yeah. Uh, prologue talk. Epilogue talk. Epilogue talk. I think the epilogue's great. I think the introduction's great. Um, I think the middle, you know, there's a couple nuggets in there that I enjoyed. Uh, epilogue part I really liked that made me think about current day. He oversaw the evolution of war from one of limited ends with limited means to a full-scale effort that destroyed the old Union yeah. and built a new and better one in its ashes. I think America, uh, I believe history is cyclical. Um and kind of like a spiral, but I won't go into that whole thought. Process. That's what I thought about it too. So, but, but what I was getting at, I think there's certain times where we get to like this crisis phase, and it's about the survival, yeah, um, of us as in our ideals. And when faced at in American history, we've come out better. Um, like the Revolutionary War is one of them, the Civil War, the Depression, um, and World War Two. Um, I think the programs came out of that that made America better. And that's what scares me about right now, because I think we're at one of those crisis moments. I hope we're at the, God, if we're at the end, I don't know if we're going to come out better. 
So I, I hope it made me think a lot about today because when you're given a crisis ideas, yeah, it sucks. You do what you can, you overcome it. And then you parlay that into something better. Um, and Lincoln did that. What else okay. did I have? I, I also like to add too. it kind of just like gets slipped in there. He kind of justifies Lincoln's, uh, issues around civil liberty specific, specifically the habeas corpus um, and some of the military trials and he kind of makes the final argument as he ends that epilogue that yeah he did this yeah maybe they were wrong but dang it they were not as bad as the espionage acts of World War One, the internment camps of World War Two, McCarthyism of the 50s um, kind of an interesting argument and I would love to see that expanded on a little bit more but I would too. Uh, Anytime you do something that made that list, not 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 a good thing. No, but it's kind of interesting that you know, like that's one area we get criticized. I don't know. I agree with you one hundred percent. But I, it kind of just gets slipped in there at the end. Um, it's kind of an interesting argument. But that blog intro are great. I have to say, I enjoyed the book overall. I think the last chapter was one of my favorites. How many cigars are you giving it, Mary? 4.5 out of 5. Wow. Yeah, I'm a three and a half or four. Okay. I, 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 and I've mentioned this several times, but I kind of fell, fell victim to the um, premise. Like, I got so excited, like, oh, mm-hmm. this is going to be specifically focused just on his role as commander-in-chief. And maybe I'm being too harsh of a critic on, on the focus to that because – for many parts of the book, I'm like, this is not like him acting as commander in chief is more of just like kind of summarizing how the war was going. Right. But I, you need that. You do need that information yeah. to kind of look at it. Um, and I do think that um, it, there were elements of it where it really got into his role as commander in chief, specifically when he disagreed with Grant or when he, mm-hmm. you know, when he had to make decisions that were tough and a lot of his appointments. So um, I enjoyed it. I think it's, you know, We've said this about other books where, you know, if, if, if you're in the target audience, it's going to be great for you. But it's very difficult with Lincoln to find that because some people either do or claim to know everything there is to know about <laughs> Lincoln. And, and some people are just starting out. Um, so but I, I think this is, it, it's it's definitely worth a read. It's quick, yeah. you know, quick read. If you're looking at look, you know, if you're picking up, you know, a Lincoln by Ronald White or Lincoln by Donald or, you know, the multi-volume ones or her team arrivals. This one's going to be much, much more man- manageable if you're looking for like a, you know, to read something over a few weeks, which I think is kind of much of the, much of the book buying world uh, for, yep. and I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Um, and I think this would be a great book to really understand Lincoln's role in the civil war. If you, if you don't want to do like a deep dive into like one of the more involved biographies, um, and and it's well written, uh, you know. That's the other thing too that we didn't we didn't really talk a whole lot about it, the actual writing. And it's sometimes I think that gets overlooked a little bit when you're when you're talking about history because everybody wants to look at the content. Um, but if it's not written well, you're you know it's 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 not even going to make it to the shelf one. But it's also not going to be really accessible to the reader. And I thought this was, was the way that he kind of broke down the chapters and the sections and, mm-hmm. and everything was was well written as well. So yeah, I, I I would recommend it for sure. I would give it a three out of five. I thought the intro, like I said, I just, the middle, I, yes, you have the title, but then you have his intro too, which made it seem like it was going to be something that it doesn't end up panning out to be. 
where it's more of a rehash. I think it either needed to be shorter, where it's more of like the intro epilogue focus, like a blog writing, or it needed to be a longer book so he could have done it. Um, if you're going to read James McPherson, I would not recommend this book. I would recommend his uh, one-volume book about the Civil War in general. And if you're starting out, I think there's too many Lincoln books to put this at the top <laughs> of the list to recommend, just to be brutally honest. Um, I mean, James McPherson, he definitely wrote a better book than I could ever imagine writing. Um, he's extremely talented. He knows what he's talking about. Um, I mean, it's not going to kill you at the end of the day. It is a quick read. Um, but to me, I personally would not put it in my top five Lincoln books recommended. Okay. Can I say more in depth why I would give it 4.5? Because you're Absolutely. because you're Canadian? Yeah, because I'm Canadian, totally. Um, just because, I mean, I think it for someone that is just getting into Lincoln in the Civil War, it is a great introduction. And also the fact that he is he mentions Thomas as well. It's rare that that seems to happen. Um, but the, the overviews he gives on the battles, um, especially in the last few chapters are really good. Like he hits the names that are important, you know, Sherman, Sheridan, Grant, Thomas, Meade. Like Which you can all get from battle cry of freedom which is a five out of five cigar book written by the same author. And he will talk about Thomas and that. So. Have you read Battle Cry of Freedom, Nick? Yeah, I have. Okay, good. <laughs> and I've recommended it to uh, me and Jeremy's friend, Blair Lemons. Shout out to Blair, who I don't think listens anymore. But, uh, and he read it as well. So, great book. Okay, well, read Battle Cry of Freedom then. It, yeah, here it is. Right I, I get it. Yeah, we know you have it. See? Told you. Look at that. Woo! Oh, look at that. Some stuff underlined. Great. Right oh, yeah, must, you, you must have read it then. That oh, means, oh, yeah, he opened that page. He's like, oh, I'm going to highlight that shit now. Right there. Another one. You could just keep flipping it right yeah, here. Yeah, we're going to keep going with that. All right. So we have wrapped up the third edition of the Real Splitter Book Club. I give this episode five out of five cigars, bro. <laughs> yes, definitely. Um, so we need to end off with a um, our of the people by the people. So Nick or Jeremy? Oh shit! <laughs> <laughs> uh, I have one. I'm just pulling it up here. Um, this is a tweet by a group who I'm, I don't necessarily agree with, but I did because there is a bit of a Lincoln connection. The Lincoln Project which is um, people who would identify as Republicans who are um, not really supporting the Democratic nominee, Joe Biden, but are against the president. Um, but I do think that they, their Twitter account is actually pretty decent. Um, and, and I probably disagree with them on everything, keeping you know in mind that they're probably the Republicans of the Iraq war era. But anyway, um, I do like a lot of their tweets. And one of their tweets from the Lincoln Project, uh, who they named themselves after President Lincoln, which is awesome, in 2016, the president uh, asked voters, what do you have to lose? He seems dedicated to answering that question every day. Uh, I thought that was a pretty witty um, tweet. And as I'm looking at it, they've got some really good ones about the current shakeup in the presidential campaign for re-election. So, yeah, that's what I picked. Awesome. Nicholas? We're on me. Yep. 
I'm the host, so I'm going last. That's bogus. You're the host. Yeah. And also, you've been writing me about my Patriots hat, so you can go before me. (laughs) Uh, We've talked, I know, like like two of our last five episodes, or maybe less than that, have been talking about statues. Tom Pete shared the link in the Railsplitter Facebook group. Join if you haven't. Um, and it's a link to C-SPAN, uh, where Harold Holzer actually discusses the debate over the Confederate monuments. So um, I know we talked about an editorial that he did, kind of talk about his stance on it. So I believe there's a link into that as well. So check that out if you want to hear more on that topic. Awesome. So mine is um, kind of a lighthearted. So we had a bit of thing going on on Twitter today where um, – we took Hamilton the musical and made it into Sickles the musical. <laughs> Actually, it wasn't me. Uh, it was my friend Darren. Um, and he started off with a picture of um, Hamilton and he put Sickles' head on somebody. And I've retweeted it. And I said it was like tweet of the day. So, but I'll post it to the Real Twitter account. But anyway, it's like people from the Hamilton musical and then Hamilton. Is not Hamilton. He's actually Sickles. And that made my day. <laughs> it was awesome. Sickles deserves a movie. Oh, Sickles so deserves like a That's movie a or joke. musical. Really yeah. Like the, the banter oh, all day about it was amazing. Like You almost need a miniseries for Sickles. Yeah, we were talking about would they throw like peaches at the stage? What would they do? No, I don't know if I'm talking Broadway play um, because I don't have the genius to visualize that. But well, hey, it would involve Stanton dancing at some point. So yeah, when are we getting Lincoln to play? That would be great. That would be amazing. Yeah, I'll, uh, I'll call up Lin Manuel and see what he wants to yeah, do. Yeah, write that. Hey, if you, maybe you should ask him to be on the show first. Then we could talk that. That'll give us some ratings. Yeah. yeah it, it definitely God. would. <laughs> um, anyway, any parting thoughts, you two? Uh, no. Five out of five. Uh, that's what you should rate us on <laughs> iTunes Store. Go there. Five out of five. They don't let you do cigars, but you can do stars. You give us a little bit of blurb, we'll share it. Although... What about international? Do we not get international ones? I'm international. I think you have to like log into the iTunes if, if there's a different iTunes store. Because we are. Because I have noticed there has been. Do we see them? Is what I'm asking. Because we did get some reviews. I don't know. if People are just giving us stars and not leaving anything. Well, I did. I forward that to you. I don't know if I did. We got a really nice uh, email from a listener. Really? In India. Yeah. Oh, um, you need to read so that Prashant, right now, boys. Uh, Prashant, if you're if you're listening, thank you. We appreciate it. Um, but he said, hi, I'm uh, Prashant. I live in India. I'm a big fan of your podcast. I just started listening now. And he asked for some recommend, book recommendations about Mr. Lincoln. And he said, thanks for the episodes. Much appreciated. So, uh, Prashant, if you're listening uh, in India... Thanks. We uh, we we we're glad you're listening, and uh, um, yeah, you're the you're the Lincoln fan in India right now. So that's awesome. That, that is awesome. Sweet. That's we're, awesome. We're, uh, three continents now. Uh, probably. 
Good for us. <laughs> <laughs> this is so this is so self congratulatory. Yeah, like, I, I've done a great job. Good for you, Nick. Thank you. <laughs> good for you. Oh, good. Your your Fillmore jokes have got us to where we need to be. You know, my ultimate goal is to go to the moon. Uh, no, find a Fillmore historian and have him on the show once. To finally give Fillmore his That's time. your ultimate goal That's of all the, of all the goals you can That's have on here. That's goal. your ultimate goal. Wow. Actually, Conan O'Brien would be a great guest. Um, he's a big Lincoln fan. Oh, my. Conan would be amazing to have on here. So, in the last 30 days, is that what this is? Yeah. Uh, just in July, the last two weeks, we've had listens in three continents, four continents. Nice. Oh, sweet. North America, Europe, Asia, and Australia. Great. We're international. Are we yeah. still recording? Is this still an episode right Yes, now? it is. We're still recording, uh-huh. Nick. Oh, yeah. Watch Sorry, what you say. For all the self-congratulatory <laughs> BS, but uh, we're, we're apparently quite popular in Poland. Uh, Poland? Poland, yeah. That's because... Uh, oh, I, I take that Polish, back. We, we have all... All listen in Brazil. <laughs> Hell yeah. They have nothing else to do. So we are missing of what, Africa and Antarctica. Get get your stuff together. Yeah, that's it. Just Africa and Antarctica. All right. Those are the only two continents where we... Just in the last two weeks. All right, we're international. Yeah, there you go. We're legit. All right, so I think that is it for tonight. So until next time, keep walking the world with malice toward none and with charity for all. And we will see you again soon.